Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. All you need to do is sign up is to visit www.thenorthernagenda.co.uk. Our guest today is Labour's Stockton North MP Alex Cunningham, who after 12 years in Parliament has announced his retirement. He tells us how he's optimistic Labour can win back support in northern heartlands like his constituency in Teesside. I think that people are listening to us again. I think for a long time uh, people turned their backs. Uh, they thought uh, we'd had our we'd had our time, and uh, you know we're no longer doing uh, what they felt we should be doing for them. So uh, I think we've managed to with our our platform on uh, on crime, on uh, you know on schooling, and all manner of other things. We've actually demonstrated that uh, we've got the ideas that the government don't don't seem to have at this particular time, and uh, you know we can move into government uh, you know anytime soon. And in South Yorkshire, local democracy reporter Danielle Andrews gives us the five things we need to know about politics in Rotherham, the borough where child grooming has reared its head again seven years on from the bombshell report which exposed the problem. And it's never gone away. I don't think it's ever going to go away. But it kind of reared its head again last month because the Conservative group released a new report. And that report alleged that CSE in Rotherham is still a continuing problem and they were quite critical of the council and police for not taking enough action. But before we get to that, a major new report out this week sets out how children living in the north of England face worse health and educational outcomes following the pandemic than youngsters elsewhere in the country. The wide-ranging research involving more than 40 academics titled Child of the North has pointed out that rising inequality costs the economy billions in lost potential. Children in the north are more likely to live in poverty, more likely to be obese, and during the pandemic missed more schooling in lockdown than their peers elsewhere in England. The loss of learning in the north, experienced over the course of the pandemic, will cost a staggering estimated £24.6 billion in lost wages over lifetime earnings. So joining us today is Dr Luke Munford from the University of Manchester, one of the academics involved in the report. Uh, Luke, welcome to the podcast. Hi Rob, thank you very much. This is a pretty hard-hitting report. What are the main things we need to know about it? Yeah, I think you're right. It is a very hard-hitting report. And I think the number of key messages to come out of it um, are before the pandemic. We know that the child of the North, um, or children living in the North of England, had um, less opportunities than people or children living in other parts of the country. And unfortunately, the pandemic has made this worse. So the Children living in the north of England, so the northeast, northwest, and Yorkshire and Humber, have had a, a harder time during the pandemic um, through lots of different channels. So, for example, we know they have had um, less learning um, than children living in the rest of the country. And that's through a number of factors. So they haven't got the um, the technology and the broadband um, bandwidth of people in other countries, in other parts of the country. The households are more likely to be um, crowded in the north of England, so there isn't room and space for children to work when parents are also working from home, uh, or, or the parents might have to go out to work because people living in the north of England were more likely to be um, sort of key workers and have to go out to work, and that led to children being um, having less support at home. Children in the north are also more likely to feel lonely, and obviously that's understandable, and there's anecdotal evidence of children thinking 
they were being punished during the pandemic because they couldn't see their friends who they went to school with all the time. It massively changed and their routine. And so it was really hard for the, the children living in the North to, to sort of comprehend what was going on. But as I said before the pandemic, life expectancy for children born in the North was much lower than people born in the rest of the country. So from 2019, for example, a child born in the North of England was expected to live two fewer years than a child born anywhere else in England. And when we drill down into specific parts of the North, so for example, Middlesbrough, and Blackpool and compare them to some parts of London and the South East, so Kensington, Chelsea, for example, there was a 12-year difference in life expectancy. If you go even further, so Stockton Town Centre or Bloomfield part of Blackpool and compare that to um, Kensington and Bulgaria, there was over a 20-year difference in life expectancy. I mean, this is a crazy 20-year difference in, in life expectancy of children born in the same country at the same time. And there's nothing right and nothing um, about these inequalities that are fair and just. We don't have to live with them. We can really do something and we should do something about these inequalities. So we know that children living in the North before the pandemic had a worse time. And the pandemic has really made this worse and there is a real urgency needed to try and rectify some of these widening and growing inequalities. The heart of the report, I think, what, what one of the things I picked up on it anyway, is the idea that these inequalities that you've just spelled out in some detail are not just an issue for now. They're going to cast a shadow over some parts of the North for generations to come. Is, is, is that right? Exactly. So childhood is the most important time in, in, in our lives, essentially. What happens to us during our childhood shapes our lives, our careers, and what happens to us through the rest of our life course. And we know that negative things that happen to us in childhood can really alter and really have negative long-lasting impacts. So, for example, this pandemic, as we've said, has limited the learning, uh, the health, um, the mental health and well-being, and, and taken children away from their usual environment. And these are all things we know to have really detrimental impacts on children's future um, plans and employment opportunities and their wages. So th this is bad at the moment, but it will get much worse. And like you say, there will be a very long scar of this, particularly felt in the North and the particularly the deprived community in the North that will last for generations unless we act urgently to try and modify, rectify um, some of these problems that we've seen the pandemic bring about. And there's a few recommendations from your report that you've outlined. What, what should the government be doing, sort of both in the, in the short term, I guess, and sort of in the longer term? Yeah, so the report has 18 recommendations um, from various different people. And these are all evidence-based recommendations and things we know um, that work. But I won't go through all 18 in detail, but I think essentially it can be boiled down to acting fast and early, targeting children in um, deprived parts of the country who've been hardest affected. And particularly, we know, unfortunately, these are more likely to be uh, situated in the north of England. And then really targeting these people through their schooling, but also wider things, such as Shewer Start. So we know there's overwhelming evidence that Shewer Start was a good thing. It really improved the health of children and their economic um, prospects. But we know that that's been rolled back a little bit over recent years. And unfortunately, it's been rolled back more in the north than it has in the south. So, for example, an average um, spending was cut by £412 per eligible uh, child in the north, compared to being cut by only £283 in the rest of England. So that was a service we knew that worked. It particularly worked in the north of England, but it's a north that's been 
are hardest hit by these cuts. So we need to reverse those and go back to things that we know are tried and tested and work. We need to put child health at the, at the sort of front and centre of everything we think about. Because as I've said, childhood is so important. If we get childhood right, then we're going to have generations of economic prosperity and healthy, happy people to come out of that as well. And the, the final question, the this much talked about concept levelling up when we i think generally when people talk about it, it it's often thought to refer to you know physical infrastructure isn't it trains and bypasses and shopping centers like physical things but the one of the main points that i got from the report is that actually for you leveling up needs to be about investing in the resilience of our children that's a more valuable way to invest our money and our, our attention yeah i think that's exactly right so we need to invest in people and children um, to have a healthy, happy workforce. So we can invest as much money as we like in infrastructure, in trains and railways and employment opportunities. But if we haven't got a healthy and happy enough workforce, then that's sort of lost investment. So I think we need to get the people right. And in the past, I think historically, we've thought that if we sort of throw money at an infrastructure, then people's health will follow behind. But I think now we're starting to think about this the other way around, where we need to get health, the health of people and communities, right before we think about other things. Obviously, infrastructure is incredibly important, but not at the expense of health. I think previously we've thought about these two things as either or. And what we argue is actually that if you get health right, then the other things will follow behind naturally. So if we just need to sort of think about it from that point of view uh, going forward, I think that'll be really positive step. Now, if a week is a long time in politics, 12 years must be considered a lifetime, but that's the period that our guest today, Alex Cunningham, has served as Labour MP for Stockton North on Teesside in a period that's seen a pandemic, Brexit and the rise and fall of Corbynism. But Alex, who served as a local councillor before becoming an MP in 2010, announced recently that he won't be standing in the next election. So now seems a good time to reflect on his period as an MP and some of the issues he'll be focusing on while still in Parliament. So, Alex Cunningham, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Nice to have you on. So you announced recently that you won't be standing in the next election. Was it was it a hard decision to stand down after nearly 12 years as an MP? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, I'd already decided that, uh, you know, when I got to my, my later 60s, that would be the right time for me to go. And uh, I'm 66 now and I'll be 69 come the general election, assuming that goes all the way to 2024. And uh, time for me to, to give a little bit back uh, to my family, perhaps, who have made tremendous sacrifices over the years uh, to ensure that I could continue my life in public life. So I want to go and do that. There's so much more life to be living as well. So you, you got you got specific plans, have you, for, for what you're going to do in, in retirement? Uh, lots of time with my grandson, but, uh, you know, Evelyn and I plan to do, do some of those longer trips uh, that we've never managed to fit in because of uh, the life of being an MP or somebody in public life. So uh, maybe the Far East, Australia, who knows, maybe even South America at some stage. Wow, excellent. Well, I hope that the various, whatever restrictions are in place at the moment have been lifted to allow you to do that. So you have said previously that you regret not getting to serve in a Labour government. I think you became MP just as Labour 
lost power in 2010. What What's your assessment of where the party stands at the moment in terms of getting back into power? Well, I think we're probably in a stronger position than we have been for, for some, some years, uh, certainly for considerable time since maybe the 2017 election. Uh, I think the uh, we've got a great uh, shadow cabinet uh, and a very strong uh, you know, shadow ministerial team as well. And I think that's going to help us going forward. But I think the people are listening to us again. I think for a long time uh, people turned their backs. Uh, they thought uh, we'd had our we'd had our time, and uh, you know we're no longer doing uh, what they felt we should be doing for them. So uh, I think we've managed to with our our platform on uh, on crime, on uh, you know on schooling, and all manner of other things. We've actually demonstrated that uh, we've got the ideas that the government don't don't seem to have at this particular time, and uh, you know we can move into government uh, you know anytime soon. Now. Obviously, in the 2019 election, was obviously a very bad result for Labour, not just nationally, but in the North as well, under, under Jeremy Corbyn. And obviously what you hear a lot is, is that Northern voters rejected Jeremy Corbyn. Do you feel that's a fair assessment? And do you feel that Keir Starmer is, sort of, is more appealing to voters in the so-called Red Wall that obviously your party is so keen to... To, to get back on side. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, there's no doubt that uh, there were some people uh, who were very strongly opposed to, to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, you know, as leader of the Labour Party, and didn't want to see him as Prime Minister. There's no doubt about that. But you know, that wasn't the only reason. The the Labour uh, position had been deteriorating for for some time. You know, even when we were in power. Uh, you know, our position had actually started to deteriorate. And, uh, you know, and people did, you know, close their ears to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and we've got to be accountable for that. You know, we got to recognise that uh, we weren't getting it right. So uh, naturally, uh, 2019, that resulted in us losing seats several across Teesside. I remember the days when we held all the uh, seats in that uh, particular area. And, uh, you know, and we need to be winning in areas like that if we're going to, uh, you know, make it back into power. And I think, uh, you know, Keir has come in. Uh, I know he's, uh, he's still uh, in some ways, uh, you know, he's very much, a, very much a lawyer, very measured in what he does. But I think in, in recent months, we've seen him, uh, you know, emerge really as the leader that the country needs, holding the government to account and, uh, you know, pulling them up for, uh, well, their misdemeanours. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking on a Thursday afternoon and one of the sort of only story in town really is the whole Christmas party, did it happen, who was there, that kind, that kind of thing. I think there were some who would, who tried to paint this whole saga as a bit of a Westminster village thing that actually people in the real world don't care about. But, you know, in, in Stockton, on Teesside, is it the case that people are really, really angry about this? Well, I do think people are angry about it. I mean, if my post bag of anything to do by people are saying that they feel insulted, uh, we all get stories of, uh, you know, people who were uh, wanting to say goodbye to li- uh, loved ones who were dying in hospital and were never given that opportunity. And yet then they, they look and see what was happening in Downing Street. And there's no doubt that it was a party, but it's pretty obvious, isn't it, from all the various leaks of the films and, and everything else. But it wasn't just that. There's other parties been going on as well. Conservative central office apparently during that time and I think uh, people uh, are angry because they saw it they do see it and I know it's some it becomes some sort of cliche there's one rule for the conservatives and another rule for everybody else but the evidence actually proves that to be the case 
How do you feel about the the changing political landscape in Teesside? You alluded to it uh, just, just just a minute ago in terms of how things used to be. Obviously, it's changed a lot recently. Obviously, the Conservative Metro Mayor Ben Houchen got back in with a huge majority this year, which is something I guess you never would would have imagined a few years ago. And there were Tory MPs in what what were once Labour strongholds. Is it a good thing for Teesside to be an area that the government clearly? wants to use as an example of how a so-called levelling up can work. Is that is that a good thing for, for people in your constituency? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, we're still trying to understand what levelling up means. And uh, the government have again uh, delayed uh, their plans for publishing, uh, you know, what's going to happen, uh, you know, to deliver a levelling up agenda. So I think Michael Gove is sitting uh, with his head in his hands uh, trying to trying to work that out at the moment. But I mean, for people in our area, they were they were angry at the Labour Party because a lot of them because of our position on Europe. Uh, I mean, I remain the person that uh, wanted to be a Remainer. Uh, and, uh, you know, two thirds of the people in my own constituency voted against. In Hartlepool, uh, you know, it was even a higher proportion of people uh, voted against, uh, you know, the EU or voted to leave, in fact. So, you know, we, we had we had to take that on the chin. But I think that, uh, you know, we've, we've hit a low point. We hit a low point in 2019. And I think that uh, the work that we're doing now will start to rebuild confidence in our communities that uh, that we can deliver the things that they need. Because they've, had, they've seen so many broken promises. We said we had promises that there would be no increase in taxation. And yet national insurance contributions are going up. That's taxation. We were told that uh, the government would sort out, uh, you know, the social care business. And now we find out that that actually uh, is prejudiced against uh, people in areas like ours where house co- house prices are relatively low and so they lose their entire estate whereas people in other parts of the country have property and assets going into hundreds of thousands of pounds so I think people will recognize you know the broken promises that they face they'll recognize the fact that uh, there is that one rule for uh, the conservatives and their cronies and a, a different rule for them and you know they will vote Labour again. I'm I'm confident of that. Now, you're speaking in Parliament later today about the accommodation that's on offer for asylum seekers in Stockton, specifically the provision for women and girls who are reportedly being housed in very poor conditions. I think it's right to say that Stockton was support the number of asylum seekers it was supporting was second only to Middlesbrough in the northeast in terms of the number of people it, it's helping per head of population I think 623 as of March but what what's your concern about the way that asylum seekers are being settled in your constituency well I mean we've gone through uh, many years of uh, you know being a welcoming community for asylum seekers I know there are some people who don't want who don't want them there but um Generally speaking, uh, we've been we've been a welcoming community, but the conditions that they've had to live in uh, has been pretty appalling. But the debate that I'm having, uh, that I'm leading today, is is about is specifically about uh, accommodation for vulnerable women and children. Uh, these vulnerable women and children are being dumped into. Uh, uh, a so-called hotel in the middle of an industrial estate, miles from anywhere else, and uh, it's no quality of life for them. No, no uh, private toilet facilities, no private uh, cooking facilities. Everything has to happen within that one building, uh, and uh, they rely on food brought in. So I want to talk to the government about 
how on earth they, they can be in a position to approve the use of such types of accommodation for some of the most vulnerable people that come to our shores. Is it your understanding that the kind of accommodation that you're talking about, it's not just in, in Stockton where this is happening, it's it's other parts of the, the country as well, that uh, women and children are being housed in this sort of uh, inadequate accommodation? Yes, that, that's very true. And, you know, the government have failed to, to process people uh, in a timely fashion. Lots of people should be getting through that system and either uh, leave the country or, or be settled in the country. But they're taking years on end in order to hear people's cases. So as more people come in to our country seeking sanctuary, we find this, we have a, we're in a situation where there's a greater demand on accommodation. There's only so much of it about. And, uh, you know, some of it is, is very poor. But for me, this is about what the government does, not just in Stockton, but across the country, licensing premises, which are totally unsuitable uh, for the people that uh, have to live there. I know another big issue that locally is the state of your local hospital, the University Hospital of North Tees, where freezing pipes and broken ceiling panels and leaking roofs have uh, rendered it not fit for purpose in many people's view. And the local NHS has lodged a request for a new hospital through the government's health infrastructure fund. I, I get the impression that a new hospital for Stockton is something that you've been lobbying for since since you became an MP. I mean, how confident are you that you might get your wish before you leave Parliament? Well, I, I always I always live in hope and I, I keep uh, barraging health ministers. But, you know, it was 11 and a half years ago when the then Tory Lib Dem government cancelled the plans for a hospital. It was all planned, ready to go. And we desperately need it because health inequalities in our area is a major, major issue. I mean, people in the town centre ward in Stockton live 14 years less on average than people in Wynyard. You know, that's a tremendous difference. And the people in some of those uh, inner city type communities, they they have uh, the hardest of lives, highest levels of uh, obesity and all manner of other, other problems, uh, high levels of deprivation. And, you know, health is a major factor in that. We need to be able to deliver the 21st century health uh, that they actually need, the health support that they need. And uh, so I will continue every single speech, uh, every time there's been a budget and every single speech I have talked about the need for this new hospital for Stockton. And uh, I'm just hoping that ministers are, are starting to listen. We had the uh, the former health secretary visit uh, a couple, yeah, just over a year ago now. So he knows uh, what we need in Stockton. He now has, his, pre, his successor now needs to deliver that. I mean, is it helpful, do you think, that you, you, you're lobbying for the new hospital, but also your counterpart in Stockton South, who is a Conservative, is also lobbying for it? I mean, do you think the government is more likely to accede to your request if, if it's a sort of cross-party call? Well, I think that's always a, a benefit. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, Stockton South MP and I were both on the same side uh, arguing for the Great Northern uh, uh, Rail headquarters to come to Stockton rather than Darlington just a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, there's other things that we work on jointly as well. And I think it's important that we do that, that we show uh, a united front. And uh, you know, anybody who wants to join the campaign is more than welcome, believe you me. Now, you've been shadow minister for courts and sentencing since last year and i know an issue that you've taken up locally and with your shadow ministerial hat on is the state of the courts in this country at the moment we know there's a huge backlog of court cases of all types to deal with thanks to the pandemic and that's led to long delays for justice for 
both victims and people in the criminal justice system. You've previously called for the local magistrates court to be reopened in Hartlepool. So do you think that the reopening of court buildings, is that the key to tackling this backlog or are there other things the government should be doing doing as well? Well, there are lots of things the government should be doing, but we could start by having uh, sufficient courts and sufficient people to staff them. I mean, we've seen something like a third of the, the budget cut from the Ministry of Justice since 2010. So that's bound to have an impact. Half the magistrates' courts across England and Wales have closed in the last 11 years, and that's bound to have an impact on the number of cases that can be processed. But the biggest problem is really in the Crown Courts, and we desperately need more capacity there. And uh, even one of the Conservative a former Conservative MPs who's now back practising as a, as a criminal uh, criminal lawyer said that she turned up for one case and they couldn't find a lawyer who was going to prosecute the case uh, on that particular day when she turned up at court. And uh, so things like that are happening. There are insufficient people in the system, the uh, lack of uh, you know development of uh, people into uh, the roles for judges and things of that nature. And so they really need to get on with that. And I still think that the Conservatives ought to fulfil their pledge that they made during the, uh, the Hartlepool by-election when they said that they would deliver services locally. Well, services uh, locally isn't Middlesbrough for the people of Hartlepool. Now, the final question, reflecting on your time as an MP, or maybe even in you know, your 30 years in elected political life, what's been the, the moment that you'll sort of remember most when you're on your travels around South America or, uh, or, or, or Australia? Well, the, re- the main reason I ever wanted to get into politics because I wanted to fight for uh, for young people in particular, uh, and even in more particular, those in, in deprived uh, communities. And uh, that's something that I've continued to do. And one of the things that I did manage to achieve, I actually managed to get a piece of legislation in place uh, to ban the smoking in cars where there were children present. And people think, well, that's no big deal, but it is because 600,000 children a year were traveling in cars, suffering secondhand smoke, having smelly clothes in, in the school classroom. And the piece of legislation that I developed was passed by the uh, by the House of Commons and uh, and is now law. And so I will always take um, I, I will always take some uh, well satisfaction, I think, from from that particular thing. But the bottom line for me is, you know, it's just been a tremendous privilege to to have, you know. Um, represented the people of Stockton North uh, and I'm grateful to them for returning me, uh, you know, four times in a row. Alex Cunningham, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's that part of the podcast where we go around the North and find out some of the political issues that are setting the agenda locally. So far, we've been to Greater Manchester, to Lancashire, Northumberland and Hull. Now let's venture a bit further south and focus on the South Yorkshire borough of Rotherham, home to the best part of a quarter of a million people and very much part of the so-called Red Wall after the previously safe Labour seat of Rother Valley fell to the Tories in the general election of 2019. To hear more on the big political issues there, let's speak to Danielle Andrews, the local democracy reporter for Rotherham and Barnsley. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be on the podcast. Nice to have you on. So there's a lot going on in Rotherham. And I guess the first thing to touch on is that the sort of party political situation has changed quite a lot, hasn't it, in the past few months in the last, uh, in this summer's local election. So what's currently going on? The Conservatives won 20 seats on 
Rotherham Metropolitan Borough Council and they now form the largest opposition party. They went from zero to 20 and Labour only just held on to their majority with 32 seats, which was just two more than the 30 that they needed to stay in control of the council. So it was a really big swing. The leader of the Rotherham Conservatives, Councillor Emily Barley, I spoke to her on the uh, election the day she was elected and she said the party won more seats than expected. I don't think anybody really expected them to go from zero to 20 in one election, but there you go. Rotherham's the latest in a long line of former mining towns that's sort of shedding its Labour past. There's there's been a big shift from Labour in areas like Rotherham across the country. And I think Rotherham's just sort of following that trend. And I think you have to look nationally as well, because sort of voting in these elections doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think Johnston's pledge to get Brexit done might have helped because there were 93,000 people in Rotherham that voted to leave the EU and that's almost 68% and in 2016's election UKIP won 14 seats so I think that kind of speaks to the strength of the sentiment in Rotherham on that issue. I can't say that the child sexual exploitation scandal didn't have an effect on the election. The Conservatives have said that it is an issue that was raised on the doorstep during their campaigning and I mean people in Rotherham saw that happen under a Labour Council administration and a Labour Police and Crime Commissioner. And I think that's massively eroded confidence in in the council and the police. You mentioned that the child sexual exploitation scandal. So it goes back to 2014, doesn't it? The Alexis J report, which revealed that I think it was 1400 children had been groomed in the town over the course of the previous 10, 20 years. And it really was quite a bombshell report that that put a lot of things into motion but seven years on it's still very much a, a live sort of political issue in 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 Rotherham isn't it yeah I mean it, it's never I, I've done this job for about 18 months now and it's never gone away I don't think it's ever going to go away but it kind of reared its head again last month because the conservative group released a new report and that report alleged that CSE in Rotherham is still a continuing problem and they were quite critical of the council and police for not taking enough action and when you read that report it's just like it just echoes what happened in 2014 not not on such a scale because it was the local conservatives that released the report but still and a working group of conservative councillors say that they found uh, multiple examples of active grooming across Rotherham. They did say it wasn't they were unable to verify all these claims, but they said that they came from reliable sources. And the the report went on to say that the group were unable to identify any proper actions taken by the council in response to reports of possible grooming. And they criticised South Yorkshire Police as well, saying their response had been lacking. So Dr Alan Billings, who's South Yorkshire's Police and Crime Commissioner, he said that the report contained untruths and said every piece of information that they supplied had been followed up, but a lot of it was vague and little could be done with it. The superintendent, Andy Wright, from South Yorkshire Police, went on to say that, you know, the officers might not be seen to publicly act on every piece of intelligence but they do act on it and councillor chris reed who's the labour leader of rotherham council said that tackling cse had been the authority's top priority the council's committed more resources to respond to the growing threat of child criminal exploitation he said that there was you know various meetings every week to review intelligence and make sure 
every tool's been used to, to tackle this problem. And then two weeks ago, the Independent Office for Police Conduct published the results of a seven-year investigation into South Yorkshire Police's response to CSE in Rotherham. That was sort of on the back of the J report. The report found that there were many instances where crimes weren't recorded when they should have been. And that included reports of sexual assault and sexual activity with a child. And out of 47 officers investigated, none lost the jobs. Eight were found to have a case to answer for misconduct. Six had a case to answer for gross misconduct. Five faced sanctions from management and one hearing still outstanding. And Tim Forber, who is the Deputy Chief Constable for South Yorkshire Police, said that the force had fully accepted the findings of the report. He said CSE remained an issue in Rotherham and across the country. And yeah, so that's where we are at the moment. A final hearing's been arranged by South Yorkshire Police to take place early next year. That's where we are with that at the moment. So like I say, I don't think it's going to go away, but it's kind of reared its head recently. Yeah, so still very much alive political issue um another issue which i guess is is common to large parts of the north is where rotherham is going to build its houses obviously there's a housing crisis affecting the whole country and different councils have different local plans or strategies to work out where those homes should go how is rotherham council dealing with the situation rotherham council uh, released its local plan in well adopted its local plan in 2018 and there were 263 hectares of land for employment it sort of specified when 900 houses were going to be built each year over the next 15 years part of that was a town center master plan so the town centre is going through a big change at the moment. There's the Forge Island development, which is a £40 million development. And there's going to be a new cinema, theatre, hotels, restaurants, apartments, homes. And there are other upgrades like a new library, a revamped interchange and new flood defences. So hopefully we won't get flooded out as badly as we did in 2019. So I think the hope is that these new developments are going to sort of bolster the economy in the town centre. The way we shop and use town centres is changing, which isn't unique to Rotherham, it's it's everywhere. And the reason people come into town centres is changing. There's more people working from home, we all shop online. And I think this is the council's way of looking to bring in footfall for other uses like leisure and housing. I think by knocking down buildings like the former Primark and creating green space and parks out of those areas... The council's reducing focus on retail and they're encouraging people to come into the town centre for reasons other than shopping, which in my opinion is quite sensible. It's a good way to future-proof your economy. Yeah, absolutely. We could see quite a lot of big, big changes on that in, in the coming years. Now, one of the big political hot potatoes in the north of England generally is a HS2. And obviously it was only a couple of weeks ago that the integrated rail plan revealed that the high-speed route would not be coming all the way to Leeds and Sheffield, as had originally been planned, and would be stopping somewhere in the East Midlands rather than coming all the way up into Yorkshire. Now, that uh, prompted a lot of anger amongst Northern political leaders, but uh, Rotherham was actually one of the places where people were probably celebrating the news because it is uh, the picture in Rotherham in terms of the view of HS2 is quite different, isn't it? Tell me about that. Yeah, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, the reaction, really. I mean, from where I'm standing, I think, residents who are going to be affected are obviously pleased it's been scrapped but at the same time we do need rail connections 
Alexander Stafford, who's Rother Valley's Conservative MP, he welcomed the plans to do away with the Eastern leg. He's he said HS2 is a monstrosity. He said the government's listening to what the majority of people want and welcomed it. But on the other hand, John Healy, who is the Labour MP for Wentworth and Dern, which is a constituency which straddles Rotherham and Barnsley, he said he expected little of the money that was saved to actually be spent in Rotherham and Barnsley. He said new train links and shorter journeys are badly needed. And he criticised ministers saying that they'd lost control of the project and blighted the lives and homes of thousands of people. But the Labour leader of Rotherham Council, Councillor Chris Reid, said it was a victory for common sense to to scrap HS2. So it's been a real mixed bag of opinions. The, the gist of it, the reason why people didn't want it in Rotherham, or some people didn't want it, is that it wasn't going to stop in Rotherham, was it, the HS2? It was just stopping in Sheffield. So the line would be going through the borough and resulting in homes being torn down and disruption and so forth, but they weren't going to see any of the actual benefits of, of the line in terms of uh, you know better connections. Yeah, it'd have been people would have seen the communities torn apart and for for a benefit that they couldn't see for themselves. So I think that's why it was so opposed. You know, you had whole whole communities being potentially torn down for something that wasn't going to bring much benefit to Rotherham. So you can see why people why it weren't popular. The final topic affecting Rotherham politics is the strains on the, the local council's budget. Obviously, again, this is not uh, just uh, particular to Rotherham, but there are particular issues that are putting Rotherham Council's budget under pressure, aren't there? There was a financial update at Fall Council in November, and it said that the the two year budget, which was set in February two thousand and nineteen, it required thirty four million pounds of budget savings, and of that, eighteen million still outstanding. So that's eighteen million Rotherham Council's got to save to balance the books, essentially, and the government announced that it had withdrawn funding to help victims of child sexual exploitation, which it had previously provided. So the council has now got to meet, it's it's around £6 million per year that is caused as a result of Operation Stovewood, such as extra social care. So Operation Stovewood is the National Crime Agency's investigation into non-recent CSE in Rotherham. That's expected to continue for another five to seven years. So if you think of the the cost each year that the council now has to meet on top of the other strains, such as adult social care and housing, that's one of the departments that's expected to, it's putting a massive financial strain on the council's budget as it is everywhere. So adult social care and housing is set to cost 6.5 million during the next financial year. And that's forecast to almost double to 14.2 million in 2023-24. So adult social care, adult care services did overspend due to COVID pressures. The department still got to make a million pounds in savings before the end of the financial year. And the overspend included things like support, paid in grants to care homes, PPE, COVID related care. There's a real problem there, I think. There's a real worry about the budget. It's going to be a tough job for the financial officers to balance the books, as it will be up and down the country. Some pretty big headaches for the Labour administration in charge of Rotherham. Well, Danielle, thank you very much for taking us through what's going on in Rotherham. It's, uh, there's a lot, a lot to chew over there. And tune in next week to find out which area of the North we'll be focusing on next. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. 
it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.